The following podcast may contain strong language and is not suitable for all baby sasquatches. Oh my god. Yeah, we I are in the Pacific Northwest, aren't we? We are. Sam's Queen of Country. Uh, <laughs> Saskatchewan Country. Oh my gosh. Starting right now. Sarah, I understand we have somebody from the Pacific Northwest who is a little bit of a big name. I like to think of him as a local celebrity anyway, so... I you- totally agree. So, as we we are joined in the studio today, it's me, obviously, Sarah Smith. I'm a former congressional candidate in Washington State's 9th District. And we have Jay Smith, who's normally a producer, is joining me for this interview with Isaac Marion, the author of uh, Warm Bodies. The, it's a trilogy now, technically Trilogy Point Five. Yeah. Nice. And then Just you wrote a... I've figured out what to call that. <laughs> I know. It's, it's Trilogy Plus. Yeah. Trilogy trilogy, trilogy Game Plus. And then uh, you also wrote a piece for Empty the Pews, which is another book of... Is it a book of essays that came out? Yeah. I think they'd all be considered essays, maybe memoirs or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. No, I read them. They're definitely essays of, to some extent, but it's more about like descriptions of what people have experienced about from in life, just walking away from the church. And that was literally the subject of the book and i read yours which was a better dream mm-hmm. which is phenomenal i really liked it it was, it was really good and um i know we're going to be talking a little bit about that but i'll just say it was cool because i could see a lot of myself in that story just having grown up in the church and having gotten a, uh, I mean mostly away from it i mean i still identify as christian but i don't really go to church anymore and i feel really out of place when i do so yeah. it, was, it was an interesting kind of look at it so that was me for a long time <laughs> I actually just cut the final string. <laughs> yeah, you just got it's time, time and time and experience. I don't know. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, Warm Bodies, it's a, it's a. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a brief story. I have listened to the book and watched the movie my second time. I rewatched it on Christmas Day, and I just made this connection um, that it is a retelling, sort of in the vein of Romeo and Juliet. Kind of, it's got some themes from that. Um, and then it was a, it's about a zombie named R and a human named Julie, and how they encounter each other. And he, she kind of like helps him find his humanity again in a way, right? Yeah. Awesome. And then uh, A Better Dream is, like I said, it's the the essays and stuff like that. But Warm Bodies is like the big one. That's like the one that got made into a movie. And you met John Malkovich, right? Yeah, briefly. <laughs> Which I think is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> he so, was the first person I met, actually. I, when I The first day I arrived on the set, I was just kind of like walking around starstruck. And the producer was talking to me. And, and she's like, points behind me like, oh, hey, there's John. Say hi to John. And I look around Oh, that John. <laughs> Hello, oh, John. Mr. Malkovich. <laughs> I like how they were on a first name basis and everything. It's yeah. like John Malkovich, the John Malkovich. Yeah. Just they love to throw around those first names in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we'll go talk to Ryan later. You know, I mean, Gosling, you know. No big deal. <laughs> Not Seacrest. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, Gosling this time. And you're like, oh, yes, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah definitely. Ryan. I definitely belong here. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel out of place? Because I understand you grew up in a little bit of a smaller town, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I've been living in Seattle for I don't know about ten, eight, eight or ten years or something like okay. that by the time this happened. But but I still felt out of place, and I always will. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was yeah, it was just a total culture shock and everything shock. So where did you grow up? You didn't grow up in Seattle. Where did you grow up? I grew up around Seattle, like small towns. Me, my family moved constantly, like. 27 times from wow. the point that oh, my wow. parents, got ma- parents got married Thir- 17 times since I was born before I moved out of my parents' house. And, but it was all in Washington. Wow. <laughs> so it's just, you know, hopping from neighborhood to neighborhood, different towns. And so I grew up, 
I consider Mount Vernon my hometown because just because I spent the most years there, but it it was one of many. Wow. Uh, why'd they hop around, if I can ask? Well, that's the big question that no one seems to know, including <laughs> my parents. I mean, my dad was a pastor and also a teacher, and so he kind of just... He, 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 I don't know, had like a wander streak back then, but it was within a very limited context. But every couple of years, he'd be like, God's telling me to go next to the church next door instead. So we pack up and, like, and it was just this kind of, yeah, he, he, it's, it's easy to make crazy decisions when, uh, you can, you know, just say God told me to do it. So. <laughs> That's what, how I want to do. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to eat this entire tiramisu. I feel like God would want me yeah, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really interesting too, to kind of think about because, you know, growing up, that was a big part of my life was this idea that, oh, God's got a plan for you. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in that plan, it gives you like a ton of anxiety. So I spent a lot of time just engaged in analysis paralysis. Yeah. I was just like, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? I think I waited maybe three years to go to college because of that. Yeah. It was just, I had no idea because of it. Have, the plan is supposed to bring comfort and order to, to the universe, but I didn't find it to be that. It's like knowing yeah. that someone supposedly has a plan, but they don't tell me what it is. It's like more stressful <laughs> than having no plan at all. And you're like, so I have to do the right thing that's in the plan, but I don't yeah. know what the plan is. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to tell me. No one can tell me. I just kind of do stuff until yeah. it feels right. That doesn't feel like a plan. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What the- was it What was it like um, growing up in that environment? So, so your, uh, your father was a pastor. Um, and were you homeschooled or did you go to a public school? Uh, never public school, but it was a mixture of homeschool and, and Christian schools. So like a few years here, a few years there. Um, I, I, it was like, it was very scattered. You know, I'd homeschool for a couple of years and then go when my dad would switch back to being a teacher again, I'd go to the school where he was teaching because <laughs> it was free. So it was like lots of weird little backwoods Christian schools where there's like 10 kids there and, and, my graduating class was eight people. You know, wow. like, oh I say God. private school and people think, you know, ascots and, and high Ivy League, but it's not that kind of private school. <laughs> that makes perfect sense because I was homeschooled all the way up. So yeah. from all the way up until college years. And yeah. so, yeah, my graduating class was a whole two. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me and my sister. It was nice. Lovely. Yeah. Amazing. Um, So then Christianity was a a big part of your life. And you mentioned Dave Bazan as a part of the group of people that um, were influential in your life. Is that like or or not maybe influential, but like big names in your life or participants? Yeah. Well, who is he and what does he what does he do? I mean, he's a musician. Mm -hmm. Um, He I think I mentioned him. I forget exactly what I said about him in that essay, but I, I talked about how he was kind of notorious, like the the black sheep of the family of Christianity in, back in those days, because like we all loved his band, Pedro the Lion. And it was very, you know, it was known as kind of this raw and honest, um, which was rare in, in the Christian music world of, of, of someone like actually talking about their real feelings and their, their struggles with, with faith. And so like we all kind of idolized him. And he was like later on actually became vaguely connected in my social circle because because um, but that was more like after he split the scene. But when I was you know a kid, um, we all kind of followed his his path with great interest because he was like, you know, questioning and exploring. And, and and then when he actually like left Christianity in a public, you know, documented on his albums sort of way, it was um, it was just kind of shocking and like made you made you think oh if, if this guy what did he find you know and maybe just made me think about it a little more i guess but yeah it was just kind of a um trailblazer i guess within my cultural group of like people who 
grew up in it and never really sat comfortably with it and then sort of watch him through his very personal lyrics unpack his process of um, eventually letting it go. And did you end up, so we talk about faith um, and faith is the thing that he really let go of. He kind of was like, I just can't let this rule my life anymore. Yeah. Um, did you have a, what was your journey like through through faith and with faith? Like growing up with a, a, a pastor for a parent and then um, writing the essay that you did for Empty the Pews. And we, I read a little bit about like your experience with small groups and, and your dad was, sounds very, like he was at least pretty progressive for what the church is. Um, I don't know where you got that. <laughs> oh yeah, am I saying something else? Yeah, I don't know where you got that either. I don't know where I got that either. Never mind. Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> they're a lot more progressive now. Yeah, um, maybe that's what I was thinking. I don't know. But what they're not we? even really in the church anymore. Okay. So, um, yeah, they, well, so so my experience of Christianity in general, is that what you're asking? Yeah, what was it like, um, what was it like being in faith like that growing up and how did that so you st- you separated from your faith you're no longer a person who has do I still identify as a Christian no okay what was that journey like for you how did you come to that conclusion what was that how did that feel to go through that after com- growing up where you did well growing up with it I mean when you, we were sort of born into it and, and in my case it wasn't just the faith it was the culture it was like this very rigidly defined bubble of pretty much didn't ever meet any people who weren't in the faith, who not only the faith, but probably went to the same church as me. And that was like the world that I lived in. And then there was, you know, capital W, the world out beyond that, which was, you know, the no man's land, the radioactive wasteland with monsters. And you never go out there (laughs) unless you're going to save people. That's the only only way you're allowed to venture out of the bunker. (laughs) But uh, that's pretty much what it felt like, you know, colorful description, but it was like, it, it, you know, like the movie The Village, basically, where it's like, it's evil out there. You have to stay in here where it's safe. And so I grew up completely surrounded by a, an echo chamber, basically, of belief where, you know, there's there's a lot of um, metaphors in theology and in, in teaching and stuff. You know, iron sharpens iron and like, don't be unevenly yoked and all these things about like, basically, don't encounter alternative perspectives because it might ruin your faith. Yep. <laughs> so avoid them at all costs. And so that like it's it's ingenious. It's ingeniously constructed to retain membership and it did work for me for a long time, but the whole time I was pushing against it. Like even when I was a little kid, I just had a lot of issues with the theology and and just kind of some of the basic concepts of of Christianity it just didn't really make sense to me and I would ask my parents about it and they'd sort of try to answer it, but they'd eventually fall back on like, well, it's the mystery, you know, like we never really are supposed to understand it and read these 10 apologetics books that contradict each other <laughs> so, <laughs> so i just kind of like wrestled with it for a long time and like as a teenager i started to get a little more aggressive and like i'd actually confront my pastor and like this doesn't make sense to me how do you how do you answer this and it was pretty much the same answer from him and so i started to just kind of get further and further afield started to read theology books that were more like vaguely heretical and like you know like dualism Josh kind Bell. of stuff and uh, i can't that sounds familiar. Love wins. No. I never read that one, okay. but like I, I was in, I can't remember the name. There was a guy who wrote a book about um, the idea that like God isn't in control and that it actually is a genuine struggle okay, between good yeah, and evil. Yeah. And I was like, that's interesting because that makes a lot more sense to me. Still super crazy, and it certainly isn't supported in in the Bible. But he found some elaborate way around to to explain it, and I tried to latch onto that for a while, but it just 
it was more and more desperate. Like I, I, I was taking the, the core beliefs and just finding like, there's gotta be some way to make this work because I really want to stay. Like people think that, you know, you, you leave because you just want to go have fun or whatever. But like, I had every motivation in the world to make it work. It was my entire social circle it was my family. So I was like highly motivated to make the pieces fit and I'm just jamming them together and like <laughs> trying to find other pieces, like somehow make it work, but I just couldn't. And so eventually, you know, I, I quit going to church. I quit going to the church that I was involved in. And I told everyone like, it's don't worry about me. Like, I'm just trying to find a different church with like a theology that fits me a little better or something. And then that went on for a few years. And I eventually was like, Oh, I think maybe I'm just not going to church anymore, but I'm, you know, I still believe and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually a few years more, I was just like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe this anymore. Like it just kind of, it, it the, the, um, the, the power of it, like the motivation to, that it, that it matters and that it needs to keep mattering when you're away from that, you know, constant reinforcement, it, that part starts to fade away. And then it's just like, why did I think this? Like, it, it's not self-evident anymore. And then it's just, it becomes easier to kind of just move on. Yeah. So certainly, you know, it took years for many years. It was a big, still a big influence in my life. And I, had um, you know many things to struggle with, but eventually it does 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 kind of fade away. So, one of the hardest things I think, especially anybody who comes from that kind of background and that community, is stepping away from it. Right? It's that feeling of if I walk away from this belief, I walk away from all the people who've supported me throughout my life. Yeah. How did that feel? It was hard for a long time. Definitely. I mean, it it. That that was right around the time that I was kind of officially making my my departure was when Dave Bazan released his Curse Your Branches album, which was kind yeah. of like his official statement, like unambiguously, I'm out. Yeah. And it, there were songs on that that just the lyrics hit hit home so much that I would like I would get super emotional and start crying every time I'd hear them because it you know, talking about my mother and like things that that I was imagining happening back home, but it was it was just kind of disorienting. You know, you, you live your whole life with uh, a specific path and kind of all these people who are built in to your world. And then you leave it and you realize like, Oh, you know, a lot of people I thought were my best friends growing up. Um, it's not that they, you know, abandoned me or whatever, but, but as soon as I wasn't in proximity to them every day, I was like, I don't know if I even like those people. And, <laughs> and it's kind of like yeah, leaving high school, you know, like, but, but it's meant to let stick with you for your whole life. So it was just, you kind of adrift, you know, I moved to Seattle around the same time that this was happening. And I was just kind of in, out in the world, you know, in the city without any guidance, without my, my belief system and without any of my social circle either. So it was just kind of, and that's when I started writing warm bodies was just from this whole idea of like, I don't know who I am anymore. And I've lost my, my, my context entirely. It's really funny you say that because so I did a little bit of research and there are a whole lot of people who take the warm body story in a very different way. I mean, yeah. one, one example was, uh, somebody saying that like when R and Julie fall into a pool of water, that was supposed to be symbolic of baptism. Yeah. I'm kind of getting the vibe that maybe isn't a good interpretation <laughs> right now. It's really interesting. Like I, I, I've been sort of mystified and, and and I'm not I'm not upset about it like I, I like that people from different points of view are interested in the story and that they take it in different perspectives is totally cool but um, at the same time I'm kind of like how 
how are you how are you ignoring <laughs> I, I can see some of those things like some of the the visual metaphors and you know the blood and the water and all that stuff but i'm like yeah but what about all the rest of it <laughs> like, what about the like strong undertones of like anti-authoritarianism anti-fundamentalism like it, it, there's and it more and more explicitly in later in the series it's like it's pretty critical of it, at least of organized religion if not religion itself but it's um it's definitely not like a pro-church kind of thing but i do get some of those those um those meta those visuals that they're getting from that well yeah i mean that makes sense right you know sarah and i we were just talking about this yesterday you know every character that an author writes is an expression from themselves yeah right so i wouldn't be surprised if like lurking be deep down in that gray muck of yours in your head right it's like definitely it's and, where it comes from but it's just like yeah i picked up on the other stuff which is really interesting it's just like I saw the characters in Warm Bodies as actually being more what you're talking about right now, representative of this kind of like fundamentalism, especially General Grigio. Yeah. Uh, that's a character I've met. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like I've met that person who, you know, is the strong authoritarian in a community and then is totally against uh, any kind of self-expression or like totally against uh, letting go of themselves at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's... Uh, it's been really interesting to me to see how I f feel like it's a disproportionate amount of Christian people are fans of, of this series. And, and, <laughs> and I don't know, maybe that's just representative of the population. I, I kind of expected it to be skewed more the other way just because of some of the, the pushback in the story. But I also noticed that there's something about people who have a religious background, they just, they, they smell it on each other and they, they, they're drawn together. <laughs> I, I find myself meeting people who either are currently Christian or, or grew up with it and left it so often that it doesn't seem like it's a coincidence and they're drawn to me and I'm drawn to them. And there's just something about, even like with artists, you know, musicians, and the, I, there's something about this that resonates with me. And, you know, there's nothing religious about the lyrics. And then so many times I'll find out like, oh, they grew up in the church and there's just something <laughs> that people connect with. So, I think, you know, the the stuff with, you know, the the Christ figure metaphor is notorious in fiction for people falling back on that like, you know, the sacrifice and the it, it pops up all the time in movies that aren't even about religion at all. And I I have to acknowledge, I mean, that is in there even more explicitly in in the the actual ending of the story, not more bodies itself, but the the last book, The Living. And I had like I kind of saw this and I'm like, shit, I did it. <laughs> like, I did that thing that, that I, I of all people should not be doing, but there's something, you know, there's a primal thing to it. Like it's Jesus wasn't the first mythological figure to do this either. Like this Horus and Mithras and it's a archetype that goes back to the beginning of time. So it's, it's just in our psyche and I'm, I'm not, terribly embarrassed to have followed that path as long as people don't think I'm like preaching. <laughs> no, I mean, Harry Potter was that Harry Potter, yeah. the same thing. Lazarus had the same yeah, thing. It's another story so, in the Bible already. So right. like it's, they're, they're really just archetypes. And when you yeah. think about the Bible and the themes of, or in terms of like different character archetypes, it's weird. It almost follows stories that even came before it. But, you know, that one's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's really funny when you talk about, though, like you smell it on each other. Right. Mm -hmm. I told Sarah this early on when we first got together. I was just like, you know, I can pick out Christian music without you ever telling me it's Christian. She's like, yeah. no, you can't. 
every single time I'd come on the radio. Bef- oh, in like yeah. the first like two verses, three verses, there's a like pattern. It was like four chords and you're like, yeah. it's a Christian song. And I'm like, yeah. stop it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get out of the car. <laughs> Absolutely. With with current Christian music, you can tell that it is Christian. And then there's another version of that where it's like the ex-Christian music <laughs> where you can just tell it's more subtle, but there's like a little note of of this like extra earnestness that a lot of like purely secular, secular people oh, don't yeah. come with. And I actually... I, I'm attracted to that because I'm kind of, you know, I've ended up somewhere in the middle. I grew up with this, you know, extremely sincere, save the world kind of feeling and like everything's really dramatic and you just kind of like actively dramatize your experiences to to pull you into the presence of God and like all this oh, intense yeah. emotional stuff. And you're kind of almost like working up your own emotions. Like you're in church and like, I want to feel it. Like, let me get hyped up so that I can like have a spiritual orgasm. And <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes you can't do it. And it just, so when you hear that in music, it's like, I, I'm attracted to that because it's like, it, it has a little more soul than, than a lot of music that doesn't have any spiritual background, but it's not actually Christian anymore. So it's like the best of both worlds. <laughs> I feel it. I totally feel it. Um, so I'm just kind of thinking about this, uh, the characters of Mormon bodies, and this is kind of an odd question, but is there any like thing that you intentionally built into the story that you just wish people would pick up on and you're just not seeing that discussion happening? Oh, lots of stuff. I mean, <laughs> All right, well, let me hear some of it. It's the thing with like writing a book that um, doesn't, that people don't take seriously. Like no matter how much thought you put into it, you know that, you know, that there are, you know, the classics, people will add stuff to it oh, that yeah. isn't even there. They'll spend, you know, there's a whole course for someone to study every little letter of it. But if you're just some guy who wrote a book that most people think is, you know, YA trash, then nobody's examining that. So, like, there's tons of stuff that when I wrote it, I was like, oh, this is interesting and intricate and cool. But I, I know most likely no one's ever going to notice it. If they do, <laughs> they'll never talk about it. So. <laughs> I got that kind of blew. It blows my mind that there's like the Christian born again um, background to it, because like there is in the book, the church of the Bonies create what they call their kind of church. And yeah. so they have like a church there and R is like, no, thank you. And I'm like, really? That's the guy yeah. that you guys think. Yeah. Is representative? <laughs> All right, cool. Just let I mean, go. <laughs> maybe people are viewing it as kind of like a representative of the well, I'm I'm I believe but I don't believe in organized religion or something. Now you could I could see getting that message from Warm Bodies itself because he does there is kind of a, a a strong background theme of him. You know, he talks he uses the word God a lot. He talks about it like as if it was important to him. Because as it turns out, in the later books it really was a big part of his life, much like mine. It's more in Warm Bodies itself, that's not really central. It's kind of more of just an undercurrent. And then in the rest of the story, it gets much more surfaced as he's remembering, you know, his past life and where he came from and, and how he responds to that in a literal way because he confronts, you know, the people that he built this system with, basically. So so one of the questions I have for you is, um, I think, and I, I think this is definitely true, typically authors are writing main characters in a way that embodies either an experience that they went through or an experience that they're currently going through. So R, first question, what's his real name? Just tell me. <laughs> I've never Just reveal anyone. it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've vowed it. to take it to my grave. I had to try. Does to, anybody yeah. know other than you or have you like kept it really hush-hush? The word is in my, in my Patreon chat room that people have figured it out in the private room that I'm not allowed to look at. <laughs> But um, <laughs> I have not seen, no one's confirmed it. And if I won't confirm it if they if they did. But I will say that all the clues are there. But uh, as far as I know, no one's found it yet. 
Okay, I had to throw it in there just to try to like, yeah. see if I could catch you. We gotta try. It's not Romeo. I mean, like Romeo is the in, is the the illusion in there, obviously, but it's not actually his name. Okay, all right, we're gonna figure it out. It's God, it took me. It was so embarrassing. Yeah. We're watching the movie Christmas Day, and I was like, oh my god. Oh shit! It's like Romeo and Juliet, and Jane yeah. turns looks at me and goes, "Are you? Is this a joke right now?" I'm like, "No." He's like, yeah. "Are you real? This is your second time, and you like you listen to the book, and you're just." I'm like, "Shh." It's funny. Pe- people, <laughs> there are people who think it's so obvious, and then people that never get it at all, and there's like nobody in between. It's like people who get it think it's super obvious. They don't think like, "Oh, I figured it out." But I, I never. It's not meant to be, you know. A retelling of Romeo and Juliet. It's just a a, a, yeah, just a reference. You yeah. know, it's a little tongue in cheek. Okay, so the real question I was going to ask you before I just slipped that <laughs> one in there. Um, so is this a thing that you struggled with? Was this idea of expressivism, right? Like dealing with your own emotions, dealing with like how do I process this kind of thing in the world? Because I'll say for myself, that is a thing that I've actively struggled with, which is I have feelings, but it's like the community that I came from told me you really as a man or yeah, as a man, I'll say that. Uh, shouldn't show emotion yeah yeah i mean that's a in the in the christian culture that's a complicated one because like you're supposed to show emotion but um but it also tends to be pretty conservative point of view and and i don't know that in my experience it wasn't so much a a man thing it wasn't like don't show emotion because you're a man it was more just it was a emotionally repressive environment in general yeah and um you know, you were supposed to express emotions towards God, but a lot of other, you know, thoughts or doubts or various things you might be struggling with, you know, there's just a very narrow path that you're supposed to be on. And I don't know how much of that was, how much of what I ended up being came from that and how much was innate or just part of my personality. But when I popped out on the other side in in Seattle and and, uh, I did find myself kind of like trying to figure out who I was and how to how to really engage with the world in a in a rich way instead of that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of these dogmatic beliefs that kind of get, uh, for lack of a better word, inculcated inside of you. Right? It's like you're in a community, even though nobody's outright told me, "Hey, don't express emotion." Nobody said that, and I don't yeah. think anybody would if you pushed them on it. Right? Um, and this is one of the things that Sarah and I talk about a lot is sometimes when you go and you ask somebody directly, "Do you believe this?" Like. Would you believe that the church, or if you ask a, a everyday church going member, do you think women are less than men? They would absolutely say no. There's not a chance in the world they would commit to that view. But it's a, a through a series of a lot of these other beliefs that cause them issues where they suddenly are just kind of like, oh, you know what? Yeah, maybe you kind of do feel that way, right? Maybe you do that way. And it's like for me growing up, um, the communities that I'm in were all kind of racist. And it was, I can remember a very specific moment in my life where I got home. And I realized I was feeling uncomfortable around uh, people of color. And that was such a weird experience for me because I was like, okay, nobody has told me to feel this way. Nobody has outright said that. I don't believe this kind of stuff. Why do I feel that way? And it caused kind of like this emotional turmoil in myself, right? Dealing with that. Um, Now, I understand though that there's a similar kind of thing that you came across. Because I think in the progressive movement, we have our own kind of dogmatic beliefs, our own things that actually cause us turmoil. Um, you know, as you, you know, I think you only need to look at like the recent Sanders and Warren debacle, but when the Working Families Party to see an example like that, where they chose to endorse Warren over Sanders, hmm. uh, you kind of came under fire from that. 
I assume you're talking about the the, the great cancellation, the great canceling of 2017, <laughs> yeah. which is what we've yeah. literally titled it in our documents. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I hope that I wasn't actually canceled. Nobody told me I was I officially canceled. I don't, I don't think you're officially canceled until the K-pop stands start a hashtag. Oh and yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I mean, do you want do you want me to describe that whole story? Or yeah, if or you don't uh, mind, tell us a little bit. Like, so I mean. I'll give you a synopsis. You wrote a tweet, a couple tweets about Donald Trump attacking you. Yeah. And I like how you say, yeah, yeah. I did. That was me. <laughs> I'm just spiraling backwards to this, this dark week in my life. A very strange mixture of dark and light in that week because there really were, I didn't do actually add, add it up numerically, but like most people took it in the spirit it was intended. And there was just, um, well, I guess I should explain what actually was for a, explain my reaction to it but basically i it was around a time where there was a lot of attention it was kind of early in 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 trump's tweet uh, twitter life and people were talking a lot about like the how he would pick you know random you often very obscure people and just like roast them on twitter and like try to ruin their lives or something and it, it became like at the at the time it was it it was almost a, like a, a running gag, a, a meme that he would he would do this, and like some he had done it to somebody recently, and it it just was becoming this thing. Like, who is he going to attack next? And so I thought it would be funny to pretend he attacked me. <laughs> Half of the joke being like, this is so absurd because not only am I nobody, but I'm a novelist of like weird fantasy fiction that n- <laughs> there's no way our paths would ever cross. <laughs> Because he doesn't read. Right. I right. saw your followers through the subtext. Right. That too. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the last fight you would ever imagine. So to me, it's like, haha, like that's the joke. And and I'm posting it, you know, to to my Twitter following who generally they know who I am and they know where I sit in the in society. And like they would they would not take this seriously. Like nobody who actually follows me would think that that I in a fight with Donald Trump because it's just absurd. But <laughs> I, so I, I made these, you know, I faked these uh, images of, of his tweets, which was also common at the time because he would always delete his tweets and then people need screenshots to show that it really happened, but it also makes it easy to fake it. So, uh, <laughs> so I made this like series of tweets that started out like semi plausible. Like if you knew who I was, it's still obviously ridiculous, but it, um, it was, you know, him basically the premise was that he read my my new book the burning world which was you know the sequel to warm bodies and thought it was about him and you know because it's like it it in retrospect it all kind of is i wrote it before he was elected and everything but it's you know about this sociopathic businessman running this trying like basically becoming the new government and he you know starts creating this whole you know trying to take take America back to the good old days. And it's like a lot of, a lot of parallels that happen, but um, it's also, you know, post-apocalyptic zombie yeah. epic. And so yeah, like, yeah. obviously not. So the premise was like, he thinks it's about him and he's like, gonna, gonna roast me because he, because it's inaccurate and biased right. and you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I did this first tweet that was that, and then just kind of did a, a series of more within, you know, the space of an hour that were increasingly absurd and increasingly obvious that it was, you know, parody and um but the only the first one went viral (laughs) and so that one you know i never imagined that it would be picked up and kind of spread far and wide to this vast audience that has 
no idea who I am and therefore doesn't understand the irony of it. <laughs> and so like they just think, oh, Trump's attacking some writer and, you know, we were going to all defend him. And oh, so no. like all these very well-meaning, earnest people, you know, support this author that Trump is attacking. And I'm like, wait, 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 like, that's not really <laughs> what I'm trying to do here. And, uh, you know, it spiraled wildly out of control and I got all these supportive messages and, and people are like, you know, making the same joke a hundred times, like as if Trump read a book and I'm like, yeah, I, that's my joke. But, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but then eventually, you know, somebody finally figured out that it was fake and then they thought that finally. it was all just this, this, uh, publicity stunt you know like i and in, 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 in my framing it's like it's twitter i make jokes on twitter it's like <laughs> you look back through comedians you know i'm not a comedian but like it's kind of the whole idea is i'm like messing with words and doing various pranks and right. i've had shit posting lots, is what we yeah, call that. yeah yeah basically i did i and that was a lot of what i did probably more than the average author with a lot of very surreal shit posting like i had this thing once where i went on i said something about like how how trees aren't alive because they don't move or something and then like so many incredibly sincere people are like well actually they are technically alive and and i was just like well no because of this and just really leaned into it and it went on like so many people started commenting on it like this guy's a fucking idiot it like, but it was hilarious to me and probably nobody else but i enjoyed it and that was the spirit in which i did these tweets and um just was not aware at the time now i'm very aware of how incredibly earnest people are on twitter oh, yeah. of all places and so you know once it gets into like the activist circles there's just a whole culture of like professional angry people who are just, <laughs> they, their job is to wake up every day, see what Trump did and then post a bunch of snarky shit about it. And like, they literally get paid for it. <laughs> and so I and, love that you call that professional angry people only because uh, we leaned into that a little bit on Sarah's campaign for Congress and that we would intend to give away our campaign. I know, I know. <laughs> if you're listening and you're running for a Republican district, don't listen, turn off right now. Uh, but what we would do is we'd actually intentionally run ads against conservatives sometimes. And the reason being, we knew that they would respond. <laughs> and if they responded, you perform better in the algorithm. Yeah. And so it would show it to more people. Yeah. And so we would bamboozle them that way. It'd be like, ha gotcha, <laughs> fucker. And so yeah. that's really funny. So what kind of response did you get from the activist community then? Well, positive, right? No. <laughs> there, there was a lot of positive response from like rational people who understood what it was about and thought it was funny and, and or at, at, at worst thought it was not funny, but wasn't offensive. <laughs> and, uh, and, but there were people that they just, they, they framed it in a context that I, that I never would have thought of, which was that I was hijacking like a national national crisis in order to sell books. And so it was like, I'm basically exploiting all these real problems in the world in order to generate publicity for myself and like, I can see if you're looking at everything through like an incredibly pessimistic lens that like everyone is is cynical and, and just trying to like, I mean, my job is to sell books. Like, of course, I'm trying to sell books. Everything I do is in some way related to trying to sell books is that's my career. But that doesn't mean that I'm like, it, that it's wrong in every context. So they they framed it as like this big publicity stunt that was, you know, basically wrong and, and unethical. And like, I didn't dig deep into it. I, I've, I've been told about a lot. Like I apparently Chuck Wendig, who's this you know, fairly well-known author, oh, I know he is, made yeah. this whole big roast about He's it, which a terrible I terrible Star Wars author, <laughs> okay, by the way. Well, <laughs> I haven't read anything and it, it, he apparently had this big takedown when it was happening about uh, talking about me, which is, I think what 
generated a lot of the the, the traffic t- of of negativity. <laughs> but um, that happened, and then just people just started flooding my mentions with, you know, this is so disgusting and so like um, just low low blow uh, attempt to generate publicity for yourself, and I like never really thought of it that way. And I guess reframing it in the context of people who are like on Twitter to save the world, it sort of makes sense. Like, I guess from their perspective, they're like out in the front lines fighting the the Twitter wars. And then some asshole comes in with this joke that people then, you know, because of the scale of it, people, so many like actual activist accounts repeating this saying like, here's another example of how Trump's an idiot. And like, cause you know, they're, they're, they crave that, (laughs) that material then it gets put in the context of like, I inserted myself in there intentionally, whereas really just like I posted a tweet on my Twitter account. I had no idea it would be screenshotted and put on, you know, the the, nine, the resistance Facebook page or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about that experience and going through all that too is, um, so we've got, I think on the progressive side, we, we, we struggle a lot with outrage fatigue and wanting to be outraged about everything. And there's a difference between like cancel culture and outrage culture. Um, but we kind of get wrapped up in it as progressives because we're so, we're so intensely preoccupied with, with what we want. We, we really believe, like you said, fighting the Twitter wars, we're out on the front lines facing the Twitter wars. And, and we, there are people out there, like, especially, you know, my parents on Facebook who believe liking and sharing a thing. Like I did it. I did my activism. I liked and shared a meme of Donald Trump to the people that already agree with me um, when the activist culture finally realized what was happening so was it like um, oh man how do I phrase this question so ha- was was it were you excluded like was it what, what was the media response I guess so did did people reach out to you like uh, from different newscasts and try and talk to you about that or was it like did grass was it grassroots media networks being like how dare, how dare you I'm trying to remember if the the I rem- the only the major media thing that came of it was uh, the stranger interviewed me about it, <laughs> and and they were like totally understanding of it. And this was yeah. like, I was very excited about this because it was kind of my chance to like tell my side of the story and explain yeah. how this happened. And they already understood it from that point of view. Like just with a cursory glance at the situation, is oftentimes all it takes for the outrage to dissolve. But people, especially on Twitter. Nobody actually looks at the thing. They just look at the thing someone said about it and then react to that. They don't go read the article or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of snowballs and becomes self-reinforcing. And um, Stranger actually, you know, looked at the context and, and allowed me to describe it. But I, it was mostly just individuals as far as like the attacks on me. It was just like I had to, you know, mute the the whole well I, there wasn't a mute thread thing back then so i just had to leave twitter for a long time because it was just <laughs> soul crushing every time i'd log on there just be so many people from so many different ways that they would find to be upset about it and like especially you know it's ha- a year later and it's still going like every couple of months i thought it would be <laughs> over and then some screenshot would surface and the whole new wave of people would come at me and it was you know half of its people saying like congratulations, Trump just doubled your book sales or whatever, but that idiot can't read. And I'm like, yeah, well, none of this was real. And it was a joke from a year ago, but <laughs> but thanks. And 
which by the way, it had almost no impact on my sales. That was the other <laughs> thing. Like, everyone was like, oh, this guy's getting rich off outrage of ma- making fake news. And that was the thing. Like they thought it was fake news. And I'm like, it's not news. It's, it's Twitter. an author's Twitter. <laughs> an author of fiction made a fictional tweet on Twitter and you're calling it news. Like I'm the Russian bots destroying the election. <laughs> like There has to be room for people to just fuck around. And but if there isn't anymore, that's what I'm realizing. Like it, this is a more innocent time, 2017. Yeah, it feels like, like a lot has two changed years since ago. then. Yeah, when you're, I would when you're never do this like... now. Never. <laughs> I don't defend it in the context of now. In the context of then, this was all pretty. It was in. It was in progress and in development. No one really knew just how sensitive the internet can be and like how actually important it can be. You know, because all this misinformation is flying around and and now it's like it's just another world. But at the time. It wasn't, and it seemed it seemed like a fair game. So I think this is one of the things that's really interesting. Um, I grew up on the internet. I uh, I like to wear my badge as a former shit poster, current shit poster, internet future troll. shit poster. Yeah. Um, but like, so growing up, there's this weird irony that kind of takes place, right? You have to understand that the sometimes people make a joke intending for other people to recognize it's a joke. And it's something wildly absurd, right? And so I think millennials in particular, and I think Gen Z do this a lot. I'm just not so sure it happened much with like the boomer culture or it's just mm. kind of like, you don't understand the reason I love moth memes is because they don't make sense, <laughs> right? And it's just like, you show that, I love the moth memes in particular, because you show that joke to like Gen Z or millennial, they get it, they laugh instantly. Yeah. But you show it to like boomers and just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, humor has gotten very abstract. It these is days. so weird. It, I love, and I love it. The bird memes are my favorite, and I used to. I showed one to my mom, and she's like, "Whose bird is that?" I'm like, "It's a, it's a cartoon mode. It's kind of a bird." <laughs> yeah, people, older people want a lot more context to comedy. They want it to be like a whole story, and I'm like, "It's just that. It's <laughs> like, that's all it is. That's a joke. Like, I yeah. don't know what to tell you." <laughs> And part of it's already the internet, right? I mean, we, we're talking in 140 to 280 characters these days. It's all we really get with one yeah. another. Or we're talking in text messages, which I don't know if you remember, but there used to be a limit on text yeah. messaging, right? You can only send 140 yeah. characters. Let's go back to that. Right. <laughs> That's why Twitter had it, by the way, uh, for you Gen Zers who don't know that. <laughs> but anyway, I think it's influenced a lot of how we actually have discourse and discussion about things, right? Because like you said, even more than a cursory glance gets you out of the hole, right? It's just yeah. kind of like, okay, well, maybe Isaac Marion didn't mean to make a joke about things, things so he could profit. It was just yeah. kind of like, Trump's kind of fucking crazy. And yeah. I, first of all, I love that he is crazy enough that this was a plausible thing. Right, that's why it happened. <laughs> that's what I didn't, What I, the big thing that I took away from this is that before this, it was understood that you could you could satirize things and people would be able to know where the line was. But it's just gotten to the point where like, you know, people say all the time satire is dead because it's just reality is so absurd. You can't make up something weird enough that people understand that it's a joke. It's all going to be assumed to be real. Like, you know, people think all the Onion articles are real. Like, it's just there's it's oh, so yeah. hard to draw that line anymore. So for me, it was like I saw I got a very firsthand experience with how hard it is to to walk that line between, you know, plausible enough to be funny, but not, you know, seem like you're, you're crying for, for sympathy for the fake wound, you know? Yeah. So for me, it was interesting. So I didn't grow up as a progressive. I didn't grow up from a liberal family. In fact, there's a lot of tension in my family over that. Hi, mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> they listen. And so they're probably going to Same hear here. 
Uh, and so it was actually really easy for me to adopt the progressive community um, because I think there's a lot of parallels. And I know that's probably an unpopular opinion, but the religious fundamentalism had these rules that you would live by. It's like, okay, uh, don't be alone with a girl, right? That's uh, yeah. Mike Pence's whole thing. And I remember <laughs> that it was so bizarre to me because uh, I, this is probably the first time I realized just how odd it was um, and how odd it was growing up was that it came out of the news that Mike Pence wouldn't have dinner alone with a woman. And I said to Sarah, oh, I get that. And she looked at me like I was crazy. Like, why? What's the issue? And it's just like, well, yeah, I guess he's, and then I stopped. I was like, <laughs> it's like, because you can't describe that in terms other than having been part of that religious community. And the progressive right. community has its own rules, right? Uh, that both encourage discourse to move in a certain way, which is really good. Like there's a lot of really good stuff here, but also has parts of it that are discouraging. So for example, just like you can't have discussions about alternatives to uh, universal healthcare. That's not a thing that you can do. I think that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think that there's a lot of kind of things here, but the ability to actually have a discussion anymore kind of gets squashed by that kind of thing. And when I think about it, I think that's the thing that you ended up falling guilty to, right? It's just kind of like, uh, you're not even allowed to joke about Donald Trump. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that it's the context of the joking, I guess, and the, the, the realizing that the internet is so, it's such a, a an environment that you can't, there's no context anywhere like that. So if you, you do anything that's supposed to be funny, that is requires any context that, I basically stopped trying to be funny on the internet after this event because it was just like, you can't, everyone sees it from such a wildly different perspective. And so, you know, there is a, if they are in the know, it, you can do it, but it's just, uh, it's so scattered and fragmented. Yeah. And I've, I've seen a lot of that too with the progressive community. Like um, when you talk about not being able to discuss alternatives, um, like when we talked about earlier, the Working Families Party endorsed <laughs> Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. The conversation I keep trying to have with people is like, you have to think of, of elections like public transit. We start out wanting what we want, right? We want Bernie Sanders. We want Elizabeth Warren. We want, for God knows what reason, people to judge. Um, but we we start out there. And it's the same with public transit. I want a bus that picks me up in front of my door and brings me right to Seattle City Center. But I probably won't get that when I show up to the next city council meeting to demand that. But what I might come out with is I might come out with, I walk 10 minutes, I get to a bus stop that's much closer to my house and it takes me two buses to get to the city center instead of like 18 buses and I have to take an Uber to the train station and it takes me four and a half hours to get to the train, to get to the city center and then I get to go home. So it's, I look at politics a lot like that. And I think when, when we talk about, about why is it okay for the working families party to endorse Elizabeth Warren instead of Bernie Sanders, like we really have to look at it like public transit so they're both great candidates they have different ideas they have different commitments but they they elizabeth warren might i'm a bernie woman but she might get us a little bit closer to the city center it's not perfect and it's not a direct bus from my front door to the city center but it's like one bus that picks me up 20 minutes away which i think is better than like but a judge which is like what four and a half hours walking down the road <laughs> to get to the train station plus an uber then i have to camp out for two days before i get the next bus like and I think we're not we're not open on the internet to that kind of discourse and we struggle with that kind of discourse and we struggle with talking about stuff and it's hard to know like what is forbidden because you never know until then you know and yeah. there's no guidebook there's no rules that bring it that that tell us like what isn't isn't okay to joke about I made a, a joke the other day I was like okay everyone hear me out 
who is Tom Steyer? And a bunch of people had hilarious responses. Great. And then a couple of people were like, actually, he's a billionaire who did this, this. I'm like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just calm down. (laughs) I don't know about rules, but I've found just from experience that there's a there's a certain threshold of complexity, whether it's a joke or an actual meaningful comment or, you know, a question or anything. If if I can kind of predict a few steps further in the conversation and there's a there's a point where if if the question or the comment or the joke requires more than like one access point of understanding, it's going to get it's going to fall apart because it because with the Internet everyone jumps in like it's usually not very linear people are popping in at different points in the conversation they they don't read the entirety of the post or just all these different reasons why they don't they they're just kind of they want to say something and they jump in and they don't it's not really a conversation so like if it if it's any issue that has nuance at all nuance and context are like the two things that you just can't support when you're like peering at this tiny little box and like <laughs> trying to you know navigate to write your response you can't just like let it flow out it's just you know i gotta get to the the next comment or whatever so i i don't know what how that can be saved i in my experience i just i i zip it when i when i have something that, that i realize is too complex to be answered in like one or two back and forths it's just like this isn't the place for it i have to reserve it for another place like for maybe a medium article someday but it's not it's not going to be solved in in any you know live conversation on a social media because it's just it the whole nature of understanding something complicated it doesn't work online it just like at least not on social media and so if you if someone is in a similar position to you unknowingly winds up and finds themselves in I don't want to say cancel culture but like in exclusion culture. So going through that I'm I just assume based off of just running for office for 2 years and then having a bad article come out about me and like the amount of panicking that I did and like how it affected me emotionally and like it, anxiously i imagine that was not that was a very stressful time for you knowing the internet was like mad at you yeah um but what is what is a strategy that you would tell somebody else if who found out that they were who found themselves in the same position if you could go back and tell yourself like how to handle it after you after it happened what was a piece of advice you give to yourself god i mean for me it was i kind of just held on to the 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 reminding myself that it's often like the loud minority that that uh that you pay the most attention to like the few three or four people who'd be like you're scum of the earth you hear that you don't you know and then you ignore the hundred people who are like that was hilarious and so that's kind of i think human nature is to fixate on the the criticism and i guess that was what kind of got me through that point was just realizing like okay like I definitely made a mistake here. It wasn't the mistake that wasn't the ethical mistake that everyone's saying it was, but like I miscalculated the the tenor of the of the conversation here and something went way out of control. But I can't stop it. I I debated about like would it even be a good idea to delete the tweet because then there is no context, at least this way the the 1% of people who actually care what really happened can go look at it. But um but it, yeah, it just kept haunting me and so I mean, I don't think it actually like hurt my career significantly i didn't sell a bunch of books but i didn't um well i mean my career did crash but (laughs) i doubt it was because of that i doubt that like 
Chuck Wendig's tweets made all of the Warm Bodies fans turn against me or something. We can blame them, though. I'm okay with that. Just, yeah, <laughs> well, that, that's awkward because we ended up being in an anthology together uh, recently. <laughs> and like I saw his name. We've never interacted, but I saw the name on the list. I'm like, huh, I wonder, hope we don't end up like at a convention or something. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even know what he said. I actively didn't pursue the conversation because I got enough of it being sent to me directly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it, if it if it's actually you know ruining your career, that's kind of another question, I guess, because you have to figure out like how do I reframe this or like what's the appropriate apology or you know damage control in general. If it's just on a personal level, I guess you just have to figure out like, well, did I do anything wrong? If you decide yes or no. If yes, then like you know respond like a human being would when you realize you're you fucked up. Like apologize or at least if there's no one to apologize to, at least learn a lesson and move on. And, you know, if you really don't think you did anything wrong, then you just uh, move to a cabin on Orcas Island and disappear <laughs> from society. <laughs> I find this really funny because I, I remember this story. All right. Um, mom and dad, if you're listening, you should probably turn off right now. Uh, <laughs> me and some church friends, we were hanging out and uh, we started doing drugs together whoa what? i know i know so like four ibuprofen uh, <laughs> yeah we uh it was specifically You're allowed to say drugs on, on <laughs> I, we don't have any sponsors so okay, we, okay, we can okay. just say whatever the fuck we want <laughs> to get demonetized whatever good whatever, yeah it's thanks fine. for really bump, <laughs> yeah. bumping up people on our sponsor list <laughs> that's gonna get us closer to where we want to get to but this is your chance if you want to um, <laughs> you can stop us from saying this you can help so anyway uh we're smoking spice which if anybody knows what that is, it's a... From Dune, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So it was a research chemical that they released as a cannabis substitute huh. um, because cannabis wasn't legal in Arizona at the time. Uh, so they sold it as an S, a, like an herbal like potpourri that you were supposed to put out. But then on the sly, everyone was like, yeah, but you smoke it. Like, that's what you do. Really? So uh, downside, unlike cannabis... One of the side effects you can get is known as the fear, which makes you realize or feel like you're about to die and makes your brain convince you're having a stroke. Okay. Guess what I got? That was pretty cool. Didn't smoke it again. <laughs> um, but what happened was after that occurred, um, <clears throat> turned out that a lot of people started talking about me in the church uh, because the pastor's kids were there. Okay. And they were doing it with us. And we were the bad kids officially and uh so they started talking about me and it turned out unbeknownst to me never even talked to me the church did a whole investigation into me they started calling my friends they started calling like and your friends didn't call you immediately and be like yo dude no they didn't nobody <laughs> what did the yeah well they didn't call the people who were in the room they started calling oh. all of my periphery friends who are quote-unquote leaders in the Situation church ships. yeah the people who were actually there with me um, who were again leaders in the church again also doing drugs right also doing things like smoking salvia with us also doing things like smoking spice like they were and also when we were throwing huge parties like and we had jungle juice and we were playing beer pong and all that stuff all of them were there all right and they're not the ones who got flack they called everybody the only reason i found out about it was because they called the pastor of another church that i attended on the side uh name guy's name was nick lang awesome pastor i really respect the guy for this calls me up um i just get out of a f i'm getting ready for a final actually i'm studying for it at the time and he's just like hey jay is this true i was like nick i'm gonna level you yeah <laughs> like yeah it's true dude and he was like okay cool 
Like there's no judgment there. There's nothing like that. But he just calls me directly and asks me about it. I lost all faith in the church over that. Um, I lost all faith in that church anyone that was doing that to me because they did, I think in the same way that like Twitter does, right? They hear about this thing. They jump to a conclusion. And rather than just talking to the person directly, they make judgments, right? And so it just so happened that I was going to retire from being a leader in that church at the time. Uh, it just so happened that my friends who were also leaders with me at the time were going to retire as well. But um, I got a lot of flack. I actually lost friends over that, which was really unfortunate. Um, and I became known as a bad kid over that. And it's not the first time that happened to me. So even the people who were doing it with you disassociated yeah. from you? Yeah. Because they just were in denial that they were part of it or they yeah, just that's exactly. they wanted to dump the, the blame on you. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's exactly. And it's like that yeah. wasn't, that happened to me multiple times uh, where I would go do things with church kids and then they would disavow me when somebody found out about it. It's just like, okay, so we're just not even going to pretend like we're doing this kind of stuff. And I think this is mm. uh, why I'm critical of kind of the, I like to use the phrase progressive fundamentalism because it implies that there's dogmatic beliefs. Yeah. But anytime somebody violates these dogmatic beliefs, whether they're doing it or not, they jump on somebody. They say, yep, that's it. You did a bad thing, right? And they smack them on the hand or they, they retweeted or send you nasty grams in your email. And I'm so yeah. sorry you had to go through that. We know what that's like. Um, <laughs> but you like, as a podcast have experienced oh, this? Oh no, me no, on my campaign. Okay. Um, one of the, uh, somebody was managing my Facebook page and um, got upset using my, my actual congressional page, they use their permissions to go and respond to a Facebook post as me. Oh. And uh, there's, there's just a little bit of hullabaloo about it. And I didn't know find out about it till I got hit on the internet by somebody who screenshotted it. And I was like, ah, fabulous. Wasn't even me. Wow, okay. So you <laughs> but, were totally innocent. In and oh, yeah. I, but I, it was my face, my name. And so yeah. I'm like, well, you're right. I, is, perception is reality. It is yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that should be so easy to debunk. Though you just say literally, "This was not me. This was my employee," and yeah. we just disavow them. But. I had to, and like that's what I did. That's what I told uh, uh, a couple of uh, reporters that reached out to ask me about it. But like, I don't, I don't get joy or feel good when I like put people out there, and I, I yeah. felt bad, even though it was yeah. a genuine, a genuine mistake and a genuine thing. I just didn't. I still to this day don't. I'm like, oh no, and I threw them under the bus. But it's not throwing them under the bus. It's accountability for what yeah. somebody else did. Yeah. Right, and like. I think the progressive movement and the dogmatic principles and the, the dogmatism that you see. So when we talk about fundamentalism and dogmatism, those are two different things. And I think people feel like it might be a semantic difference, um, but it's not. So fundamentalism is not necessarily a bad thing. Like in progressive circles, it's it means that we, we stick to our values. We have fundamental requirements of being categorized as a progressive. You have to support uh, women's rights. You have to support LGBTQ rights. You have to climate change is real. Medicare for all. Uh, education for all. These are these are fundamental principles that we operate by. But when you get dogmatic about them, that's when you refuse to engage in any conversation. And there is literally no possible way but your way that is right. And we get mad at at anyone that perceives some sort of that we perceive some sort of violation of that dogmatic adherence to those principles in. Um, and I think Twitter kind of falls into that trap all the time. And the we list the progressive left. Yes, our fundamental values are better than the far right conservatives. <laughs> they are they're more worthy of being supported in a dogmatic way. But that doesn't mean that that kind of dogmatism doesn't lead to failure and us failing people in the movement, us letting people down by pushing 
pushing away and isolating other progressives and other and other people that want to do right and do well. And you see it like with you where it's it's going after it's making a joke on a meme about Donald Trump. But because we're so hooked into these dogmatic these dogmatic reactions to anything we perceive as a violation of our, our fundamental principles, we don't stop and take any kind of ownership of that. We don't stop to take any kind of like critical thought moment and be like, is this maybe a joke? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was the, the, the complaint was that it was a joke is like, because there's a, they're part of dogmatism is incredible self-seriousness and everything oh, is yeah. incredibly serious, which mm-hmm. many things are very serious, but if your whole worldview is like everything is dire life or death, there's no room for, for playfulness, then you get really offended when somebody even like lightly jokes in the realm that you're, you're fighting in. Cause it, you know, in, in that perspective, it's like you're on the forefront front lines and people are dying and someone's cracking jokes. It's like, it's offensive, but yeah. it's a, it's a, pers- it's a perspective. Like if you're seeing the world like that, you're not going to like me. Like that's <laughs> we're not going to get along if you don't believe that anything, you know, that, that can be treated lightly because everything is like maximum heavy. You have to find levity. We've talked about yeah. it on the podcast too. Like I make a lot of jokes about things, but it's because like you have to be able to find some moment of lightness yeah. in the world. Like you have to, or you'll die. And I don't think that it, I'm like not one of those comedians who are like, we should be able to joke about whatever you want. Like, like there's no such thing as taste and like, you know, <laughs> being tone, being tone, whatever the opposite of tone deaf tone hearing <laughs> is, but you know, it's a, it's nuance again. Like you have to kind mm-hmm. of find some, some line to, to follow on. It's not black or white. Um, so I guess what are you, how has this experience changed your worldview? So uh, maybe not of the internet, like I, we've talked, you've talked about like realizing that it's not as nuanced, but like over overall, when you look at, when you scale back and you look at politics and you look at the world, and you look at how people react to things now, has it, did it have any effect? Did it change anything you thought you knew or did it validate some sort of truth you maybe suspected before? Um, did it bring anything to light or, or take anything away from you that you didn't already have? Yeah. I mean, I would say it, it, uh, I don't, it wasn't an abrupt change, but that was kind of like the first of a series of realizations that I'm, and I'm still, it's still in progress. I'm not really sure where I'm ending up, but I, I had a much rosier optimistic view of like how I could engage with society at that time. And that was one, one blow amongst kind of a series of things where I found that my my perspective um, of, you know, what, how, how one could like engage and play and have like a, 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 I don't know, the particular role as an entertainer or whatever, or even just as a, a person engaging with society, I kind of had to gradually give up a lot of my, my notions of um, what was possible and kind of scale back my involvement in a lot of ways, because I just found like, maybe there's a way to navigate this, this playing field that, um, that you can kind of do it all, but I can't find it. And I just keep finding that so many of the ways that I like to express myself and, and, um, you know, be kind of an open thinker and communicator. And like when something comes up that I don't understand, being able to just like talk about it. And and a lot of the things that, that I was accustomed to doing in my naive youth, I now find like it's just it's a horrible experience to be like that because any if you tried to be 
just, um, you know, on the level all the time. And like, you know, the phrase tell it like it is gets used in a lot of terrible ways, but like, it's not so much tell it, but I like to just talk about things as I see them and kind of be involved in a lot of, um, kind of more on, on the, the, the front lines of culture kind of stuff. I found that I don't think I can really do that anymore. I've just been sort of backing away from, from that particular battle because I just feel like it'll kill me. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's so, it's so complicated and it's so just the, it's not even the issues themselves. It's just the, the medium of engagement with it. It feels so uncomfortable to me, like the way that people want to talk about everything and just like these cramped spaces where you can't, there's no room to breathe with the issue. It just like has to get sorted out. And like, if you make one wrong move, that you didn't even mean to make, but it just sort of sounded like that. And then you can't get rid of it. And then everyone piles onto that. And it's just, it feels like I I've often compared it to like trying to have like a philosophical conversation by tapping on the side of a, a ship when someone's out in the ocean or something, <laughs> you're doing Morse code and you're trying to communicate like these rich, complicated issues. Like, no, all I can do with this is like help or just, you know, I'm here say cut out, cut the metal. And just, I feel like I'm, in in you know locked in a ship when i'm trying to communicate on the internet which is where pretty much all everything happens now yeah. so it's like if i hate di discourse online then i sh kind of have to withdraw from discourse in general i one of the things i really like just about this whole discussion and about when we're talking about these kind of things is you were talking about uh in the better dream right part of what made you walk away from your faith was the the nihilistic worldview, the nihilistic eschatology, right? This idea that we don't need to focus on the world today because the world today is going to be gone tomorrow. So yeah. what's the issue? And, you know, I think that worldview is really toxic in a lot of ways, but you ended it by saying, you know, we can focus on a better world today. You know, I think you used yeah. something about this. I think you used the phrase, this mud ship or something. It was good. I liked mud it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was a good play yeah. on words. I liked it. It was almost like yeah. an author or something. It's uh, tough because like that, I do believe that. I mean, and that's most, my books are all about, you know, not giving up and continuing to like yeah. push for a better world. And, and, uh, and so was that essay. And like, that is a big part of what I think. And I'm kind of in this awkward tension point right now between I want to be involved. I want to, you know, fight the good fight, but I also kind of feel like the world is shifting in a way that I can't keep up with. And yeah. like, I'm 38. I'm not like, yeah. well, it's time to let the kids do what they want. But, <laughs> but like, it, it just feels like it's moving so fast. And I, I, to be, to be part of it, even just as a citizen, let alone like a, an artist contributing to the conversation, I feel like I guess I'm kind of finding my niche in all that. Like I, I know that I'm not going to be like a super political writer. Yeah. I, I think the, the Warm Body series is about as political as I'm ever going to be. And that was, you know, actually not that subtle. <laughs> it was fairly ham-fisted at times. <laughs> and and I really got in there. I was like, here's what I think about society and and like laid it out there. And and I I don't regret it. Like I it was kind of a, a youthful expression of of my worldview. But now having kind of purge that i feel like i'm ready to to step back and just sort of engage things from a roundabout like less direct way and in a way that will allow me to kind of communicate ideas but without necessarily being like in the debate in yeah. an active way that's kind of where i settle as like as an artist is just I'm, I'm not it's not my job to determine policy it's my job to kind of contribute 
thoughts to the ether that get absorbed by people and they can do what they want with them. So I like it. So I guess my last question for, well, one of two last questions for you is, um, second to last question, what are you working on now? Do you have any projects in your pipeline or are you just focusing on breathing and doing whatever feels right? Well, I, I wrapped up Warm Body series last year. I just realized a couple of days ago that it was actually a whole year ago. Oh, I was wow. like, oh my God. <laughs> what, and I had to think, what did I do this whole year in between? But turns out I actually did a lot of stuff. It just all didn't go anywhere. Like I wrote a screenplay, I wrote a TV pilot and a whole series plan and a bunch of short stories and just like lots of little things, but they just didn't really uh, flourish. And so ended up kind of um, in this limbo for a little while. And I, I just started a new book like last week. It's awesome. this book that I've been sort of kicking around for, well, I've been kicking it around for like 10 years because I wrote an early, another version of it when I was like 19. And, and then the story just kind of stuck with me all these years and I've been wanting to, to revisit it. So I just now um, kind of began that book and it's a whole, you know, certainly no zombies in it. It's totally, <laughs> totally unrelated. And I'll finally not be dealing with any genre expectations because I would love to find out what box someone could possibly put this book in because <laughs> it really does not have any of those markers that people love to grab onto, which is probably a blessing and a curse for me trying to market it. But um, yeah, like it's pretty new, like too new to really go into detail about, but um, but I've started it, written the first couple pages. Awesome. And so right. I can now say that I am working on that book. Perfect. <laughs> so that Actively feels good. working yeah, on it. That's yeah. great. And then where can people find you if they want to find you? Twitter, Facebook, internet, website? I'm basically on I all love. of it. But I mean, my website, IsaacMarion.com is kind of the hub. It has the links to all the things. And that's where you can buy. It's the only place you can buy The Living, which is the you know the end of the Warm Body series because I self-published it. And uh, it's it's on there. You can get the ebook on Amazon, but the real book is only there. And I've got like a another. I've been pretty busy branching out into a little bit of like photography, poetry stuff on my Instagram, where I, that's where most of my recent literary output is on there. Of these kind of little interactive poem visual things, and uh, and then I'm infamously on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I have one last request for you. Um, so the reason we reach out to you is because a good friend of mine said, "Hey." you should message this guy. He lives in Seattle. Uh, in fact, you made a post about a year or two ago saying, asking for some kind of help in Seattle on your Facebook and she tagged me in it. Help. Yeah, I don't know. It was, I can't remember. But anyway, she said you should was. reach out to him. Uh, so I did. Uh, would you mind saying hi to Nicole for me? Hi, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you. That'll Thank make you. her life. Oh, yeah. Okay. She's like, it's my favorite book. Yeah, so. She's the whole reason we're here together. Yeah. Okay. She's the reason. She's fantastic. But cool. thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you yeah, coming on and talking about some weird stuff and taking a bunch of weird different twists and turns. We like to not be like a normal podcast and ask you the same boring yeah, questions. Yeah, covered time. A, a wide <laughs> range of territory. Yeah, we oh, do yeah. that. That's what we're notorious for. But thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming down and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you after you've released your Wanna new book. Make cool. him <laughs> yeah, thanks again, Isaac. Thanks. Appreciate you. Well, and uh, I've today we think it's better left to Isaac. closer to the end <laughs> of oh, these old dead and empty streets. Okay. As you take your stand, we'll maybe understand it.